Our children are now dismissed for Children's Church. My delights is watching them go to church. When I was 14 years old in early May, I broke my shoulder. My expectations of spending a summer playing baseball ended up on the couch. But there I discovered reading, not because of school, but because I found I loved it. I don't regret breaking my shoulder. I've discovered over the years of reading that I really like to have a character in the book I'm pulling for. Somebody I'm cheering for, somebody I want to succeed, somebody I want to see them overcome. And if I don't get that, I don't like it. And that's the problem I have with this parable. I don't like any character in it. And you think, well, maybe there's a good moral to the story, maybe a good memory verse. (laughs) Make friends by dishonest wealth. I can just see myself going home from church and spouting that one to my mother. She would have said in a very sweet voice, try this one, spare the rod and spoil the child. When you have a guy who's accused of dishonesty and he doesn't defend himself, instead he goes out and acts dishonestly and Jesus commends him. And yet something nibbles at the mind because Jesus didn't tell stories for our amusement but to provoke our thinking. Years ago I attended a conference at the Baptist Sunday School Board in Nashville kind of continue education for pastors. And while I was there, they showed a cartoon to us. And in the cartoon, there was this obnoxious little character with a grating voice that sounded like fingernails on the chalkboard who was always saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Every situation, he piped up and said, yeah, 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 yeah. After about 10 minutes of this, the other cartoon characters gang up on him, and there's that scuffling cloud. And then the next scene, there's a coffin. It's got the little cross on it and everything. And the lid flies open, and this little character sits up and says, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we debriefed it. And what the ministers almost unanimously said was, he got what he deserved. But watching the leader of our group, I thought maybe there's some other interpretation here. And I asked him about it later, and he said, well, if you think about the character, he's saying yes in every situation. He's the one offering the affirmative And even in death, he rises and says, yes. He said, Jim, he's the Christ figure. And the pastors just put him to death again.
Is it possible that Jesus told a story where a rogue, a reprobate, is the Christ figure? Well, you think about it. Jesus wasn't very respectable. He didn't do a good job of keeping the Sabbath. And we don't think much about that. We have plans for this afternoon. I'm going to watch football with 300-pound people run into each other with great violence, and I'm going to think it's entertaining. <laughs> Jesus hung out with lowlifes, with hookers and thieves and outcasts and the diseased, and he died like a common criminal. He really is a rogue. And there's this story about this manager who's caught in a culture that promotes corruption. He charges the fees for his master, but he's allowed to charge extra to fatten his own pockets, and he can charge whatever he can get away with. And the culture itself is based on honor and shame. And the more you got, the higher up you are. And he's pretty high. It's only the master who's above him. And it allows him to do things to people below him based on his greed. And we hardly notice the people below him. And Luke uses this story to connect two other stories. And he sounds a theme that resonates throughout the gospel. There's this father who loses his son. Well, he doesn't lose him. The son walks away, takes his inheritance, and goes and squanders it. And he moves from this position of being high up the social ladder to the lowest possible place of feeding the pigs and eating what the pigs ate. In their minds, you didn't get any lower than that. But there's this great reversal. He goes home, and he's restored, and he's celebrated. He's back up here. The story right after this parable starts with, and there was a rich man. It talks about how well he ate. It talks about the wonderful food he had. He even had his own beggar at the gate, so he looked good by contrast. And the beggar is disguised in such a situation that his sores were ones the dogs licked and were green with envy for the man's wealth and green with nausea about the beggar and the description. But again in Luke's gospel, there is this great reversal. Death comes. And the rich man is no longer up here. He's down in torment. And he wants Lazarus, this sick beggar, who's now up here. He wants him to come give him a drink of water. And the word is, no, you had your chance. Things are reversed here. Luke's gospel constantly brings about great change, this reversal of fortune. It starts with Jesus' announcement that the good news comes to the poor that the captives are released, that the blind recover their sight, that the oppressed go free, all of things being reversed. And throughout this, the proud are scattered, the powerful are brought down, the lowly are lifted up, the hungry are filled, and even at the end of Luke's gospel, death itself is reversed. And so Jesus tells a story Summoned before the one who controls his future, our dishonored steward gets a glimpse of that future. No longer my manager. 
he's going to go, he's going to crash. And the story has this wonderful humor about it. He says, I'm too weak to dig. I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? And so he acts to gain a place where he will be welcomed. And we begin to feel deep within ourselves what we ourselves want. A place where we are welcomed. A place where we belong. A place where we're loved. And he changes. Seeing his own future, he changes. He changes how he sees people. He changes how he treats them. No longer people to be used for his own enrichment. He sees them differently. No longer marks for his corruption. Now he sees his salvation. The humor continues as he plays fast and loose with the master's money. He treats it like it's monopoly money. How much do you owe? 100 drugs of oil? Make it 50. How much do you owe? 100 containers a week? Make it 80. I'm still waiting for the holder of our mortgage to cut me this deal. (laughs) How did the people who received these marvelous discounts feel? They got a new lease. They're moving on up. Because they've been treated with generosity, with kindness... Maybe the way we see people is how we find our way to salvation. That sense of being whole, that sense of having a place where we truly belong. Who's below me in the pecking order? Who is it that I see and categorize and dismiss? She was 16 years old in the hospital, bald from chemo, weak from disease, voice barely above a whisper. An African-American woman dressed in what identified her as part of the housekeeping staff stepped into the room and started busying herself with emptying the trash and getting ready to mop the floor. So easy to see and categorize and dismiss. But this 16-year-old girl saw her, watched her for a moment, and then said, thank you for cleaning the room. And that woman looked up a little too quickly, surprised that this girl would speak to her. And she locked eyes, and you can take it in in a second, and you know what's coming. And she said to her, honey, you just get well. How easy it would have been for her in housekeeping to see one more white kid who was sick in this hospital and dismiss her. But she didn't. And just for that moment, it felt like this was a very sacred place that transcended age and race and health. And they connected
Maybe the way we see is the way to salvation. I've done a number of interim pastors around, and one of my joys is meeting some of the wonderful characters that people our churches. In one of those churches, I met C.J. McBroom. First Sunday I was there, they had a bottle of water up by the pulpit for all of us dry mouth preachers. C.J. was taking the offering, and he made a show of walking with a stern face down, picking up that bottle of water and unscrewing the cap and smelling to see if maybe it had been spiked a bit. <laughs> Putting the cap back on and setting it back down, looked at me and walked back to his pew. What a delightful character. <laughs> a, few, a few years after that, it was my sacred privilege to conduct his funeral. And after his funeral, a woman came to me at that time when the church had provided the meal and everybody's eating and talking. And she said, I want to tell you something about C.J. McBroom. She said, several years ago, my mother had a stroke. And she had always loved the music. She just loved it. She lived for that part of the worship service. And when she had the stroke, she couldn't sing anymore. And she couldn't even remember the music anymore. And CJ is the one who went by the church every week, just kind of quietly inquired about what hymns they'd be singing Sunday. And then he left. Nobody knew where he went, but he went to that woman's home and taught her the hymns so that she could come back and enjoy the music and the worship as she always had. In every church I've ever been in, there's a list. We call it the list of shut-ins. I wish we had a better name for it. I don't know what it would be. But if you're on that list long enough, you're in a category, and it's too easy to forget who they are. To C.J. McBroom, she was not a name on a list. She was a woman with music in her soul. How we see someone is the way we find our way to salvation. The doctor said he's just a junkie. Let him be in pain. It's Friday. I'll deal with it on Monday. I do not mean to disparage doctors. I have a lot of them who are my friends and who actually take care of me. The older I get, the more of them I have. Work with a number of wonderful physicians. But this particular one said he's a junkie, let him stay in pain. Maybe he would have seen him differently if he'd known that he was an addict, but he'd gotten addicted to painkillers in a VA hospital where he was recovering from his wounds incurred in Vietnam. Maybe it would have changed the way he saw him if he'd known he was in Vietnam because the only way he could get out of the juvenile facility where he was housed was to volunteer for the Army and for Vietnam. Maybe he would see him differently if he knew he was in that juvenile facility because he had been arrested at the age of 12 because he was passed out in the back seat of a car that had been used in a strong-arm robbery. Maybe it changed the way he saw him if he knew he was in that car because he'd been on the street for three years since the age of nine when he ran away from home. 
Maybe it would have changed his way of seeing him if he had known that at the age of three, this boy's job was to hide under the bed while his mother conducted business on the bed, and his job was to steal the money from the men who were conducting business with his mother. There was a woman who saw this man, not as a junkie, not as somebody with AIDS, though he had AIDS. She saw him as her son. He wasn't, but she took him in and she cared for him just as if he was. She confided to me once that if my neighbors knew he had AIDS, they'd burn my house down. Who is that person I see and categorize and dismiss? Somebody with different political views from mine. We're very good at that right now in our country. Somebody with a different age. When I hear somebody say something about that old man, I no longer turn around to see who they're talking about. Somebody with a different orientation. Mother Teresa once said, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. In our story, he wants to have a place. He doesn't want to be alone. He wants to belong. She was just a kid, skinny, scrawny little girl, easy to dismiss as a nuisance, easy to say, why don't you go home and play with your dolls? He was a Vietnam vet working on his car, trying to keep his PTSD demons to himself and not incur the wrath of his family because they didn't understand about the night sweats and the night terrors, trying to hold on to that place. And here's this little girl come down the street, have to tie knots in her legs to make knees. But she needed the place to hang out to avoid becoming a casualty in her parents' war. He didn't know that at the time. He didn't let her hang out. Eventually he'd say, why don't you hand me that particular tool? And he would teach her what tool it was. And over a period of time, not only taught her what the tools were, but what they were for, and taught her how to use them. And she became not this kid who went home to play with dolls, but this child who grew up to become an auto mechanic, and who in that process had a safe place to hang out. Time came for this man, as it will come for all of us. A time of disease and dying. And guess who was the one who came every day? That little girl who grew up and became a woman, who never forgot the openness and the love of this man, trying to keep his own demons at bay, giving back to him what he so desperately wanted to hang on to, a place to belong.
Jesus commends this dishonest steward for making friends. And he notes that you cannot serve God in wealth, but he strongly hints that you can serve God with wealth. And maybe our problem is that we confuse wealth with money. He concludes the parable with some cryptic remarks about what we get from all of this. And one of those comments is, who will give you the true riches? Who will give you what you really need, what you really want? Dishonest steward made his changes. His fortunes are reversed. He finds the true riches. Several years ago now, I ran a race here in Louisville, a VIP race. Hot, humid day. I was intent on doing a good time. I'm not in much danger of winning races unless nobody else in my age group shows up. I was so happy, I was passing these two guys, younger than I am. (laughs) (laughs) And I overheard one of them say, while I'm feeling my pride, I overheard him say, now there's a pothole to your left, and then we're going to go up a hill to the right. And I thought, well, can't you see? And then it hit me, no, no, he cannot see. VIP stands for visually impaired preschoolers. It was a race to raise money for VIPs or VIP or visually impaired preschoolers. And these two men, one could see and run, and one could not see but wanted to run. And the seeing runner had spent time with him training. And when you notice, they had a rope tying, not tying their hands together, but they could both hold on to it so that they could stay connected. And their goal in that race was so different from mine. Mine was to finish with a good time. Theirs was to stay connected and to finish together. I know who had the better goal that day. And you do too. What we need, what makes us whole, It's finding a way to be connected and to do life together and arrive at the destination, the place of true riches. Amen. One of my joys being part of this church is to be with so many people who work so hard and so well at seeing other people. Not seeing those things that divide us, but seeing those things that unite us. Not seeing our differences, but seeing our common need and the love of Christ for all. If you're here and you're looking for a church, I commend this place to you. You won't find perfect people, but you'll find some really good folks. And you'll find people who love you. If you're not sure about this whole religion business, maybe you want to talk to one of us, some of us who are wearing robes, kind of identified that way. We'll help you talk about it and work with you about figuring some of that out. But we sing a hymn, and the doors of this church are open, and the heart of this church is open to you. You come, please, as we stand together to sing.